Welcome to another discussion on The Mosaic. I'm Lauren Rolston, and today we're covering the recent move toward healthcare privatization from the Ontario government and the pushback from recent legislations and developments that signal it. We'll also shed some light on the newly released Barbie movie and the social dynamics of the very doll itself. And finally, an exhibit celebrating 40 years of hip hop in the Ottawa Gatineau area. All that coming up on The Mosaic. The Ontario government is empowering private clinics by expanding their scale of operation. They say allowing private clinics to conduct more surgeries will alleviate the current backlog burdening the system. Eyebrows raised in the community, as many hospitals are understaffed and unable to distribute personnel to another clinic. Last week, on Wednesday, July 19th, a group of activists and healthcare professionals gathered to discuss the future of healthcare and the current struggles the system faces. CHUO's Aria Gunde attended the panel and took a closer look into the context of the province's system and the driving force of its controversial state. Healthcare is essential to any human community. It's no surprise that creating and maintaining a successful system is expensive and complex. For years, Ontario has been criticized for not being able to do it right. Long wait times and staff shortages are just some of the problems currently plaguing the province's healthcare system. Doug Ford has turned to the private sector to address these concerns, but has been met with intense pushback. David Julian Whiteman is a former employee of the Ottawa Civic Hospital and whistleblower of its conditions. Throughout his two-year employment, he took pictures consisting of broken equipment, unhygienic, and wasteful practices. The photos were published in an article to The Leveler, which then led to Whiteman's termination from the hospital. Last week on Wednesday, Whiteman held a photojournalism exhibit showing the state of disrepair in the hospital. CHUO attended the exhibit and the subsequent panel discussing the increasing role of healthcare privatization and the Ottawa Hospital's development of a $3 billion mega hospital, which will be the first hospital in Canada built on the public-private partnership model. The panel discussion covered a broad range of topics, including the systematic issues of healthcare, the over-policing of government institutions, and the politicization of for-profit models. So I'm going to take everybody back to a time BC, before COVID. (laughs) And I want to remind everybody that the current Ford government was elected on a promise to end hallway medicine. That's Ed Cashman from the Ontario Health Coalition. He backed Whiteman's expose and urged the public to spread awareness. There's nothing in there that that you should lose your job for. If anything, the CEO of the Ottawa Hospital should have called David into his office and say, David, help me fix this, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? Instead, by his actions, the CEO is telling David, shut up, get out of here, and let's cover it up. So I, I wanna start with the number one thing that everybody in this room can do, and we're gonna be inspired by those photos on the wall, The number one new thing you should do is expose and educate. So congratulations, David, for exposing, right, for speaking up. Farhat Rehman from Moms Offering Mutual Support and moderator Khadija El-Hilali also partook in the conversations on the systemic crises within healthcare and incarceration systems. The activists and professionals argued privatization will only lead to more price gouging for healthcare within prisons and the community alike. The group shared methods of resistance and activism initiatives to take part in. White men urged people to spread awareness of the conditions within the hospital and to stop donating to fundraisers financing the construction of the new development. 
One of the most powerful tools is advocacy within families. So that I would often tell patients who are struggling, I'd say, tell your family to call the doctor. Tell your family to call the hospital. Tell them to do it every day. The panel pointed to problems in the bureaucracy of healthcare privatization. A for-profit landscape habitually enforces class warfare between executives and workers. Take the Ottawa Hospital, for example. Its CEO, Cameron Love's management strategy is to hire more supervisors and rely on casual workers for hospital duties. This added layer of supervisors insulates the hospital's brass from any criticisms from the patients or staff. Hiring casual workers lets the hospital avoid paying employees proper benefits and giving them job security. Following privatization in specific hospital departments like the cafeteria, unionized workers were replaced promptly by their non-union counterparts. Meanwhile, the hospital's executive class enjoyed large pay raises. Some of them even doubled their salary. This raises a red flag for white men and the panel guests because if private healthcare profits are not funneled back into the system and instead paid out to executives, the system is doomed to fail. Doug Ford is shifting towards privatization by giving private clinics the ability to bill OHIP and conduct specific medical procedures. Critics point out that extending OHIP to private healthcare providers threatens the stability of underfunded public hospitals and won't benefit wait times at all. The private healthcare clinics can also engage in predatory pricing tactics, squeezing the system dry to make a profit. During the panel, Cashman stated that 400,000 Ontarians voted against Ford's privatization efforts in an Ontario Health Coalition referendum this year. That's 98% of participants that are opposed to the privatization of Ontario health care systems. The activists on the panel stress the importance of stopping privatization in the capital of the country. They say Doug Ford and the Ottawa Hospital CEO Cameron Love will be giving the reins of healthcare provision to those aiming to profit from it. In Ottawa, I'm Arya Gunde coming to you from CHUO. The host of last week's panel, David Julian Whiteman, is an independent journalist and community activist. In his expose of the Ottawa Civic Hospital, he decries its treatment of its patients and staff. He points to wasteful practices in the food department where unused food is thrown out and a toxic work environment for already strained employees. Pictures show overflowing garbage cans, broken equipment, and other instances of uncleanliness and ruin. A sign of short-staffed institutions incapable of proper maintenance. Hosting the panel last week, he discussed these matters and called for action from the public and Ottawa Hospital CEO, Cameron Love. I sat down and spoke with Whiteman before the panel, and here's the conversation we had. I guess if you could briefly tell us and our listeners what's being discussed today, what's the state of healthcare in Ontario look like right now? Well, we have a scenario where there's a serious push for privatization. It is like this post-pandemic I think it's sort of related to like a larger global corporate coup going on all around the world. But it's specifically here in Ontario, we're seeing the conservative government replicating what the Harris government perpetrated back, you know, 20, 25 years ago um, with their what they call at that time a common sense revolution. And at this point, you know, Doug Ford, I think, is using a similar playbook. And um, it's up to us, I think, as users of the healthcare system, as workers, as patients, um, as supporters to basically stand up and say, like, we're not going to tolerate our system being sold for the sake of corporate profits. And, and this panel comes after you did that article where you personally worked as a cleaner at the Civic Hospital and you reported on conditions detailing abuses, misconduct and neglect. Uh, and that was published just in May. So what led to that decision? 
Uh, yes, it was published in The Leveler on May 1st, May, May Day, Workers' Day. At the beginning of 2022, we were experiencing the Omicron variant at the hospital, and it was a really, really heavy time. And the areas where I was working in the hospital, I was just seeing a lot of stuff, and I got pretty disillusioned. And I actually in- initially went, took my concerns to, actually went and spoke to Joel Harden about it, and... I, uh, I spoke to a couple of other people about it who are well, politically well-connected, and they basically all told me the same thing, like, oh, you got to work through the union, oh, you got to work through the channels. And I thought, like, well, I mean, sure, like, it's great that there's a union, but it's a very bureaucratic union, and, you know, there's no, it's not an activist union, it's not a, you know, militant union, it's not going to really challenge the system. It's designed to keep workers at their stations, so to speak. The more I thought about it, the more I realized that I could use my journalism skills and experience to sort of craft a narrative that would include the kind of information that has just not gotten out to the public about real workers in the hospital. There's always a narrative about doctors and about doctor shortages and about nurses and about nurses being angry and upset. That's the narrative. And there's never any talk about the cleaners and the transporters, the porters, the supply services folks, like everybody who goes into that place together, the clerks, the PCAs, patient care assistants. You know, there's so many folks that go into putting that operation together. So we're in a situation where folks like myself, we've been out of a contract since September of 2021, and the hospitals are bargaining in bad faith. They're taking advantage of Doug Ford's policies. They're taking advantage of his intransigence and his refusal, basically, to deal with anything. So they, they're aping the provincial government's actions and sensibilities. It's, it's basically corporatism, which I view as a form of, you know, that enmeshing, as Mussolini was quoted to say, that enmeshing of corporate interests and government, which, as some people would like to say, was Mussolini's definition of fascism. So we have a situation where the hospital is under the control of somebody who has never worked as a patient care person in any form or another. You know, the CEO is a businessman, for lack of a better term, a corporatist who is in there to bring privatization to the system. They want to bring in this as a test subject here in Ottawa to force privatization into the Ottawa hospital, and they'll be doing that across the province in the years to come. So I think that the onus is on us here in Ottawa to really push hard to stop the privatization of the healthcare system here, which will have a knock-on effect for helping other communities stop the privatization of their institutions. Yeah, when I'm reading about the justifications that people like Doug Ford or Cameron Love have for privatization, they usually come back to saying that this will help healthcare workers in the long term. And and what, what do you have to say to that? They're lying. They're straight up lying. They know it because the thing is that they know what they're doing doesn't help workers because it's hurting us. Like the union will talk about how they have told the employer over and over and over again about all these issues and the employer just refuses to listen. You know, I myself made multiple complaints about supervisors, all these issues around abusive supervisors. They just don't care. They literally don't care. They know and they don't care. They know workers are getting hurt and they don't care. They, they push forward because the point of their existence is not to make a functioning hospital. It's to make a dysfunctioning hospital. It's to destroy the system as it is so they can rebuild it. They want to destroy the system so that they can build privatization out of the shell of it. And they're allowing the civic to completely collapse. And one of the reasons for that is they're putting all of their money and our money too, because they haven't been paying us, into the new hospital. They're directing all the finances into the new hospital and the renovation of Cameron Love's office. 
and starving the rest of the hospital, all three campuses, starving them of the finances that they need. They, they have a long-term plan that basically is, is like a cabal of corporate vampires, and we need to resist. One of the main reasons why this happens is that they are in the dark. They exist in the dark, and people aren't paying attention. We're at this point now where our healthcare system is collapsing, so people are being forced to pay attention. For people who aren't aware, uh, what do you mean, like, not getting paid? Well, we've been without a contract since September 21. That's support service workers, QP4000, clerks, patient care assistants, and support service workers like myself, cleaners and other uh, transporters and food services and so on. So the hospital has been trying to keep us to 0.98% pay raise. They wanted to give us less. They want they offered us less than Doug Ford's mandated 1%, which is like a straight up slap in the face. You know, this is the bare minimum we can get, so we're going to give you less. Like, that's just obviously anti-worker. So that's where the basis comes from, where they don't want to pay us. But then it's also in these manipulations of the way that they hire and bring on full-time and part-time jobs. Like, for example, when you look at the number of full-time and part-time jobs listed in the housekeeping department that I used to work at, you will find that the numbers don't match the numbers of people who are on the schedule. You'll see by looking at those numbers that there is a shortage of full-time and part-time positions being filled, and they're being filled by casuals on purpose. So there's about double the number of casual workers, and the administration is using casual workers to fill positions that should be full-time and part-time with benefits. The hospital doesn't want to do that. So the hospital is absolutely manipulating and exploiting the workers and immiserating our conditions. You know, I think it suits them for the hospital to collapse. It suits them for things to get worse for us because they obviously don't care. You know, they are funding themselves. They're giving themselves massive raises. In one case, one of the executives got, you know, a 94% raise during the pandemic. Cameron Love himself got more than 60% in raise in the last several years. And they want us as workers to get 0.98% plus make concessions, as in agreeing to more egregious terms within our uh, our workplaces, working more hours, taking on more responsibilities and so on and so forth. So they want us to work more and they want us to get paid less. So it's just crazy. We just can't tolerate that. It's a lot of those anti-worker conditions, like you said. And after witnessing all of them firsthand, you decide to blow the whistle. Was that a hard decision to make? It took me more than a year from the point at which I made the decision to start the work to the time when I was ready to approach uh, some folks that I knew at the leveler. And they uh, encouraged me. They saw the public interest in what I was doing. And, and that process, I got to say, took several months and it was really actually quite wonderful. I was fortunate enough to start writing when I was really young, and the experience that I had at The Leveler was one of my best experiences of being edited, and the back and forth that I had with the editor was really appropriate, because there were times when I was, you know, being a little bit uh, hot-headed, perhaps, in my in my rhetoric, and, you know, he would <laughs> insist that I tone it down, or, you know, he was really good about questioning me, and, and so he really pushed me really hard, and so I was really pleased with the final result, and one of the things that I really value is that across the board and across all campuses, I've heard the most incredible words of support and agreement and approval and appreciation from my fellow workers. And that just means everything to me. Like in this situation where, you know, I have thousands and thousands of coworkers, I met hundreds of them. I'm a pretty gregarious person. I'm always chatting and trying to help out in whatever way I could in, in the hospital. And so to hear back and then to see people and to be greeted, you know, with warmth and gratitude, like that has really, really meant the world to me. 
I was, yeah, curious about uh, the response to that, and I'm happy to hear that there's been a lot of positivity. Have you found that that's the majority of the response? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I've heard very little negative. I mean, the only really negative response I've had is from, obviously, from the hospital administration. But mostly, like, one of the best things that I've heard from people, especially those folks who've been around at the hospital for many, 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 many years, when they turn around and they say, everything you said was true. Ha! Huh. <laughs> like, like, wow, like... <laughs> Like, it's really, it gets me emotional to think about, like, how people have felt, I think people have felt heard, and that's been really meaningful, um, and I got a lot of response from the union sort of leadership, because I've been dealing with them quite a bit, and so I got a lot of feedback from them, and they told me about what they were hearing from the membership, and I think it really helped to crystallize a kind of voice for a lot of workers. Now, the question is, though, it's not translated into any kind of form of betterment for the situation that we're in. I mean, that's going to require more direct action. And we're setting up all campuses are going to be picketed at least once or twice a week. And so, you know, I think that's great. You know, we definitely need to keep the pressure up. And then we need the public to basically tell the hospital to give us better working conditions. So, so you dedicated the expose to those fellow workers in the scrubs as well, the people who you're hearing from now saying that was spot on, that representation, that is something that they've experienced as well. In regard to moving forward, what is actually the steps that need to be taken to make sure that they have adequate working conditions? Well, there's going to be a much larger fight to be had because the hospital is just ignoring us. I think they feel they're in a really strong position, although they're actually in a very weak position. They're very vulnerable. And what they're vulnerable to is public pressure. This is what's so important. We are not in a position to strike. You know, I'm, I'm wearing, you can't see it, but I'm wearing a sticker about if we could strike, we would. We're not allowed to, you know, I think there are wildcats happening all around the world. And there are ways that nurses can wildcat. I mean, I would have conversations with nurses sometimes to be like, just stop using the computer. Like, you know, you just, you're not leaving the bedside. You're just refusing to chart everything and put it into the computer. Just take pieces of paper. I mean, if all the nurses were prepared to do that, within a couple of days, the hospital would cave. And with support service workers, we can't really do that. I've thought and thought and thought about it as cleaners. We can't really work to rule in the same kind of way. What we really need is public pressure. And again, like this whole thing about how they function in the darkness, they benefit from the lack of oversight, the lack of public oversight. There's almost no public scrutiny. You know, I mean, everything is about, you know, slapping each other's back and getting the paycheck for these administrators and for everyone who's involved in the money side of things and the administrative side of things. And for the people who wear the scuff shoes and the scrubs, we're just getting completely screwed. Our situation is collapsing. Unfortunately, I'm not sure uh, what it's going to take next. Uh, we definitely need to up the ante in terms of workers rising up, but what the system can tolerate, it's a lot, actually, as we've proven over pandemic. So we'll see what happens. Right. And so for that support system to help these workers rise up, we need that accountability and we need that public pressure to get there. So if there's one thing that you can say to the public right now, what would that be? If that level of public pressure is there, not only can we get a better contract for QP4000 workers, but I actually argue we could stop the privatization of the hospitals. We can stop that by calling on the people of Ottawa to call for the resignation of Cameron Love. I really worry that history is rhyming right now when it comes to Ontario, and we need to change the tune. Well, David, thank you so much for taking the time with me today. Thank you. That was my conversation with David Julian Whiteman, a whistleblower of the Ottawa Hospital's conditions and host of last week's panel against the privatization of healthcare. Barbie has found herself in the spotlight after Greta Gerwig's film released last Friday. 
The doll has been around for about 64 years now. She's been at the center of gender norm discussions and feminist critiques. CHUO's Eja Tavis takes a closer look at the impact the doll has had over the years. Today, we embark on a captivating journey into the realm of Barbie, the iconic doll that has shaped generations. In this segment titled Barbie's Feminist Agenda, a social critique on gender norms, we delve into the upcoming Barbie movie, its promotional materials, and the feminist statement it seeks to make. Prepare to explore power dynamics, inclusivity, and the evolving perspective on Barbie as a woman's icon. Let's dive right in! In recent years, Barbie has undergone a remarkable transformation, challenging traditional gender norms and reflecting our changing society. With Greta Gerwig's highly anticipated Barbie movie, the promotional materials have caught our attention. The posters feature a slew of Barbies who are accomplished politicians, writers, and Pulitzer Prize winners. While the cans are just cans, the contrast is hard to ignore. It appears to be a deliberate critique of gender norms, shedding light on the imbalanced burden women often bear in relationships and in our society. Our first topic of discussion centers around the power dynamics portrayed in this thought-provoking campaign. Reflecting on the movie's tagline, she's everything, he's just can, we're confronted with a sharp commentary on power dynamics. It serves as a reminder that women frequently carry a disproportionate mental load and household responsibilities. Numerous studies consistently reveal that women assume greater responsibilities in relationships, from managing children's schedules to handling household tasks. It's a heavy burden society places on us. The promotional materials for the Barbie movie draw attention to this inequality. But let's dig deeper. What evidence supports these claims? According to the Pew Research Center, statistics highlight the added load women often shoulder in various aspects of their lives. This prompts us to critically examine gender norms and strive for equality. However, our exploration does not end here. Our next focus will be the realm of feminism within the movie. Greta Gerwig, the director of the Barbie movie, asserts that the film is undeniably feminist, but with an emphasis on inclusivity. Margaret Robbie, who plays Barbie, makes it clear that feminism means equality between men and women. The contrasting power dynamics between the Barbies and the Kens at the beginning of the film draw attention to the obvious inequality present in Barbieland. It's about recognizing and valuing women's worth. In a society where women are often pitted against each other, this notion encourages unity and empowerment. The film's feminist undertones aim to inspire young girls to embrace their unique qualities and challenge the idea that they need to conform to specific standards of appearance and behavior. But let's not forget the significance of Barbie's evolution as a woman's icon. Over the years, Mattel, the company behind Barbie, has taken notable steps to diversify its doll range by incorporating various hair, skin, and body types. This transformation reflects a changing perspective on Barbie as a woman's icon. Margaret Robbie acknowledges that Barbie should not represent a singular ideal for women to aspire to be. Instead, it's about celebrating diversity and authenticity. By expanding the definition of what Barbie represents, Marcel has opened doors to more nuanced and authentic portrayals of women. It's a step towards a more inclusive and accepting society. We have a unique opportunity to engage in meaningful discussions about gender equality, societal expectations, and the empowerment of young girls. The feminist themes showcased in the film aim to inspire a shift in cultural perceptions, encouraging a society that recognizes and values the contributions of all individuals, regardless of gender. 
The question is, how can we as individuals continue to support and uplift young girls in their journey towards empowerment? That was CHUO's Eja Tavis on Barbie's culturally iconic yet controversial role over the years. The Ottawa Art Gallery is celebrating 40 years of hip-hop with an exhibit called 83 Till Infinity. The audiovisual exhibition shows history and experiences of graffiti, DJing, and MCing. It particularly focuses on the Ottawa Gatineau hip-hop culture with posters, clothing, vinyl records, and more. The curators of 83 Till Infinity say the materials they were lent show how the values of hip-hop are built on culture, community, activism, and justice. The exhibit opened this month and will run until February 18th. And that was The Mosaic for this week, bringing you discussion and analysis from the Ottawa-Gatineau area. Tune in next week on CHUO 89.1 FM.